Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible this morning, you might want to start by turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to to start the message today with two scriptures that fall outside of the book of Revelation. These two passages, I think, speak directly to what I'll be sharing from Revelation chapter 2 today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you the second passage is James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 James 1 2 through 4 count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Uh, both uh, uh, Peter and James here speak to the body of Christ about the inevitability of suffering. The inevitability of suffering. And of our need to embrace it with full faith in the Lord and to also embrace God's promise that He will use the suffering for our good and for His glory. You know, since the founding of the church, Christians worldwide have known something about suffering, specifically speaking of being persecuted for their faith, with the possible exception of those here in America. Truth be told, we really do not know much of anything about suffering for our faith at all, really. We don't. There may be an exception to that rule, but in the larger scale, uh, we don't know anything about being persecuted. But let me tell you, church, that very well might change, and it might change sooner than we think. So we need to think about that, be in prayer about that. Getting back to Revelation, the second church to receive a personal letter from the glorified Lord Jesus, they knew something about persecution. And that's why I started that way. The second letter to be written by John, as dictated by Jesus, was written to the church in Smyrna. Let's take a few moments this morning to kind of get that context. I'd like to try to give that to you if, if, if the information is, is readily available. Uh, Smyrna was a seaport city located about 35 miles northwest of Ephesus. We were at Ephesus last week. This week we're up there in Smyrna. Its beginnings go back to around 1000 B.C. 
which is about the same time that David became king of Israel. Now, there's no connection. I just share that as a point of of reference. By 700 B.C., Smyrna had become a powerful and prosperous city, and it boasted that Homer, who wrote Odyssey and the uh, Iliad, uh, was from that city. Around 580 B.C., the city was destroyed by Aleates, king of Lydia, and it lay in ruins until 290 B.C., or right about that time, when it was rebuilt by Antagonus, who was a general in the army of um, Alexander the Great. And uh, he rebuilt the city after uh, Alexander's death. Because of its destruction and rebuilding, it became known as the city that died and rose again. And I'll just invite you to keep that in your mind as we read the passage here in just a moment. Smyrna's prosperity was boosted by her alignment with Rome. And because of Rome's influence over the years, many different temples were built. Temples to goddesses, to gods, and to emperors. I didn't have any pictures of that, so I can't share those with you. But one was built to the goddess Roma, to Sibeli, to Aphrodite. Those were goddesses. There were temples built to Zeus and Dionysius, and also to emperors, uh, Tiberius and Domitian. By the way, the picture on the screen is kind of an artist rendering of what the city may have looked like based on the terrain and so forth and historical uh, accounts. Like Ephesus, Smyrna had, uh, uh, Smyrna had all of the amenities for her 200,000-plus citizens. That's, again, the ruins you see there. Uh, she had a gymnasium. She had a massive agora. I believe that the, that's the agora there, what's left of it. Uh, she had a theater that seated about 20,000 plus. Uh, that's a picture of the ruins of the theater. The next picture, I think, uh, shows what it probably looked like or might have looked like in its day. Pretty impressive there. She had two harbors, which, of course, added to her ability to be rich and, and well-off. She had broad paved roads. Uh, there were many other things that Smyrna enjoyed in that day and time that allowed her to be a prosperous and powerful city. Smyrna, the word, means myrrh. Myrrh is a fragrant sap risen, or, uh, yeah, I'm having a hard time talking, uh, risen, yeah, risen, that comes from the bark of the camphora tree that is said that it was useful to reduce pain, to kill bacteria, and to create perfumes. The, the, the aroma of uh, myrrh could only be enjoyed after it was crushed. So it had to be crushed in order for the sweet aroma to come forth. There really is a connection with the believer's life in much the same way that the aroma of Christ usually comes flowing out of his church when it's under pressure and persecution. Egypt was a major consumer of the product. It was used in the embalming of, of the uh, pharaohs and such. And so uh, myrrh had a certain connection with death. You'll recall that myrrh was one of the three gifts that the Magi brought to baby Jesus when they finally found him, right? Gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh. 
And of course, we would wonder, I wonder if it came from Smyrna. They weren't the only producer, but who knows where it came from. Smyrna was a beautiful city. It was called in the day the lovely. It was the crown of Iona. It was the ornament of Asia. So during the time that John was exiled on the island of Patmos, Smyrna would have been a wonderful, beautiful place to live. That is, unless you were a Christian. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As you know, uh, each one of these letters that goes to uh, a different church, each letter deals with something that was unique about that church. Last week we looked at Ephesus, who had lost its first love. And so Jesus then introduces himself to them as the one who has the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we came to understand that those seven stars represented the seven leaders of the church, uh, of those churches, and those seven lampstands represented the churches themselves. We might ask ourselves, why did he introduce himself that way? Well, he introduced himself that way in part because it is one of the ways that he had introduced himself to John as well as many other ways in which he introduced himself to John. But secondly, we, we understand that he introduced himself that way to the Ephesian church because he wanted them to repent. And he wanted them to return to the works that they had been doing prior when their love for him was hot. And so Jesus, the one who does walk among the lampstands, among the church, told them that if they don't repent... That he will come to them and he will remove them from their place. And so that's one of the reasons that, or probably the main reason, he introduced himself that way. Smyrna, as I told you earlier, was known as the city that had died and been raised back to life. And so Jesus introduces himself to them as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Let's break that down just a bit through truth point number one. The words first and last is a direct reference and connection to Yahweh, who is the self-existent one. He is the first and the last. And as Jesus um, identifies himself in that way, he is claiming full equality with Yahweh. He is claiming full equality in his deity. That means he is fully God and also in his eternality meaning that he as Yahweh typically we think of the father uh, is self-existent the words died and came to life though point to Jesus's unique ministry 
He came into the world to give his life as the propitiation for our sins or the satisfaction unto God for our sins and his resurrection as the power that brings eternal life to those whose sins are forgiven. And so in this statement, he is identifying himself as fully God. He is identifying himself as the only one who can bring redemption and salvation from human sin. So to those who lived in the city that died and came back to life, Jesus introduces himself as the one whose death and resurrection changes the eternal trajectory of sinners who are saved by God's grace through him. As we come to verse 9, we find the commendation that Jesus brought to the church. And we discover that Jesus' commendation to his saints in Smyrna also serve as his words of comfort to them. Comfort because he knew of the difficulties they were going through. We find there in verse 9 that he makes mention that he is knowledgeable about their tribulation. I know your tribulation, Jesus says. The believers there in Smyrna lived under constant oppression from those who hated them. And they were hated not because of their race, not because of their ethnicity, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That was the foundation of it all. The Roman loyalists, they hated Christians because their faith in Christ was the impetus for their refusal to acknowledge the Rome's many gods, not the least of which uh, their worship of their emperor as God. And this caused Christians in the city to be branded as rebels against the Roman government, which was intolerable to those in Smyrna because, as they say in West Virginia, the hand that buttered Samaria's bread, uh, Smyrna's bread, excuse me, was that of the Roman emperor. And so to go against him and to cause problems in that uh, area was to uh, cause problems for their well-being. And so um, uh, they were having tribulation as they were living there in the city. Jesus also said that I know of your poverty, your poverty, Smyrna's wealth and prestige being directly tied to Rome meant that those who did not live according to the cultural norms of the day were excluded from the culture's privileges and wealth. The word used to communicate Jesus' understanding about their poverty is pochia, which points to one who has so little that they are forced to beg to survive. So we're not talking about someone who just can't have the newest car or the fanciest flat screen TV or live in a three or four or five hundred thousand dollar house. We're talking about someone who has nothing and so much nothing that they have to beg others to provide for them so that they can just make ends meet one source said of their poverty that the only way that the church members in that city could go about peacefully was to carry a certificate showing that they had offered incense to the emperor proclaiming him lord the fact of course that christians can't do that then played into the persecution they faced and being locked out of the economic 
engine of the community, which then would lead them into a desperate poverty in the physical realm. So we can understand that the believers in Smyrna were in desperate straits as it relates to their economic ability. Now, Jesus said, you are rich, but he wasn't talking about their bank account. He wasn't talking about the size of their home. He was talking about their richness, referring to the true riches they have in him. And truly, it doesn't matter how poor you are. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are a rich individual. But as it relates to how the world looks at it, uh, these believers lived in desperate poverty. Number three, uh, Jesus said, I know the blasphemy of those who claim to be Jews um, and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. You know, the, the truth of Scripture would have us understand that from the moment that Jesus sat down in the synagogue there in Nazareth and read from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61, the Jews and the Jewish religious system became his prime enemies. And since they were his prime enemies, they became the enemies of those who follow him as well. Now, in the statement that Jesus makes about these Jews and their blasphemy, uh, he makes the statement, I know of those um, you know, who claim to be Jews. What is he saying when he says that? Well, he's not saying that these people uh, were not Jews ethnically. Uh, he was speaking there more from the perspective that being a true child of Abraham, being a true Jew, is more than just one's outward heritage. It's more than just their outward circumcision. In verse 29 of Romans 2, it says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. And so just being of the lineage of Abraham from God's perspective, does not make one a true Jew. In fact, I am a full-blown West Virginia Gentile. But because I'm in Christ, I am a true Jew. Just as the rest of you who know Christ would be considered true spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. So these people were Jews ethnically, but they were not Jews spiritually. Jesus also speaks in relation to them of the synagogue of Satan. What is he talking about there? Well, Jesus is not saying that they went to the synagogue on Saturday to worship Satan, but rather that their blasphemous rejection of Christ and his followers made them ever much as uh, followers of Satan as the pagans who worshiped idols who lived around them. That's what he's saying there. Some of the blasphemous accusations that these uh, Jews who hated the Christians, that they were leveling at the feet of the body of Christ, are these. Number one, they were accused of being cannibals. Again, these accusations are being made with the idea of trying to turn people against them, right? They, the people who are making the accusations know they're not actual cannibals, but they're, they're saying that because of the communion, right? Uh, the, the thought that they are eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. So they would spread this idea that these people are cannibalistic in their religion. They also made the accusation that they were immoral, uh, going back to the idea of the greeting one another with a holy kiss, 
taking that completely out of its context and making it into something that it was never intended to be. So these are immoral cannibals who are also anti-family. And they would say that they were anti-family because as often happens when one member of a family, a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter would come to faith in Christ, there would often be family conflict and there would be family division. And so they would say, well, you see, these people don't care about family. All they do is care about each other. Would to God that today they would say we care about each other. Amen? Because that is the evidence, our love for one another, that we belong to Christ. But they were said to be anti-family. They also leveled the accusation that they were atheists. Atheists because they would not recognize the pantheon of gods that Rome had. So they, they didn't, the Christians don't recognize any of those as a deity. They don't recognize our emperor as a deity. Uh, they don't even have a statue for their God or an idol for their God. Um, their God is invisible. And so uh, these people deny the spiritual realm and they are atheists. And then finally, uh, the accusation politically that they were disloyal and rebellious uh, simply because they would not offer the required sacrifices to the emperor. So what we find is that just as Smyrna was beholding to Rome for their prominence and their wealth, the Jews of Smyrna were beholding to the political and religious systems of that city in order to enjoy the good life that they had, and they saw the Christians as a threat to both. I want to talk just for a few moments here about persecution. Persecution as it relates to those who are Christians who follow the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 15, we find Jesus speaking about persecution of his followers. Verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours, but of course they didn't keep his. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Truth point number two. Persecution and suffering because, of one, because one follows Christ is not to be considered an anomaly. It should be considered as normal and expected. Let me read that again. Persecution and suffering because, of, because one follows Christ is not to be considered an anomaly, a strange thing, something that's weird. Wow, can't believe anybody would persecute me because I'm a Christian. It's, that's strange. No, don't think of it that way. You should really think of it as normal and expected. Now, of course, we in the West, we, we think of it as an anomaly if it ever happens to us 
We can't identify with that truth point because um, it's not been our experience in this country to be persecuted because of our faith in Christ. But make no mistake, church, we are, we, you, we, the mission church, we are an anomaly. The fact that we could walk in here pretty as you please and sing as loud as we wanted to sing about the blood of Jesus and that we can give and support missions that go around the world and we can pray anytime we want, anywhere we want pretty much, I guess except maybe a public school classroom. But anyway, we can pray just about anywhere we want. I mean, we, we just can't get it in our heads that that, that is a strange thing. But it is. We are the anomaly. And here's something that you need to keep in mind. That anomalies don't last long. They don't last forever. And if you're paying attention to the signs of our culture, the anomaly of our smooth sailing is likely to take a hit sooner than later. But we don't need to be discouraged about that. We don't need to be forlorn about that. We don't need to get depressed about that because Jesus never promised his followers a life of ease and comfort, quite the opposite. But he did promise that he would never leave us, that he would never forsake us. And knowing the challenges that we face, he did promise that he will bring comfort and that he will bring strength to persevere as we look to him in faith-filled obedience to his leadership over us. Criticism. Well, there is none for this church. No criticism. Along with the church in Philadelphia, these two churches, the church in Philadelphia, the church in Smyrna, are the only two churches to receive no criticism from their Lord. As he walked among them, as he evaluated them, as he looked into their life, he had no criticism to offer. Wow, I would have liked to have known them. I would have liked to have understood how they lived life, not just together as a community, but out there in the world in such a way that Christ had nothing negative to say. That brings us then to verse 10, which is the prescription which there is no prescription for fixing something because he had nothing to criticize them about. So I'm going to change that to encouragement. Prescription, encouragement. What did Jesus have to say by way of encouragement to them? You know, if, if I could plot out the future for the, Samir, uh, the church in Smyrna, I would tell them that there is no more suffering coming for you because you've already been persecuted and you've stood the test and you have uh, met it head on and you have remained faithful. But you know the truth of the matter is is that that's not reality for Christians in a world that is under the sway of the evil one, Satan. And so Jesus comes to them in the reality that more suffering is on the way. And he gives them two encouragements about that. The first one is that they should not fear what the devil is about to do. Do not fear what he is about to do. He's about to do some things that you're not going to like. They're not going to be pleasant, but do not be afraid of that. Uh, I read this scripture, 1 Peter 5, 8, at the beginning of the service. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. For the Smyrnian Christians, 
Satan was working to see many of them thrown into prison for their faith. No doubt he thought that the threat of going to prison or actually being in prison would cause these Christ followers to lose their faith and fall away from him. It kind of reminds me of Satan's conversation with God when he was there in heaven and spoke with him about Job. Satan told God that if God would allow Job's health and wealth and, 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 and family to be lost, that Job would curse him. And so if you remember the story, God allowed Job to be tested. And not only did Job not curse God, in Job 13, 15, we find Job saying this, and he said this at the lowest possible point that he could get to and still be alive. He said, though he slay me, yet I trust him. Though he slay me, he had lost his whole family, save his wife. She wasn't a whole lot of help. He had lost all of his wealth. He had lost his children. He had lost uh, the respect of his friends as they were convinced that he had committed some kind of sin and that's what was bringing this disastrous uh, situation upon him. And there he is, literally scraping the sores of his body with a piece of pottery. But his statement was, though he slay me, still I will trust him. You know, there's value in our faith being put to the test. I don't think any of us like that, but there is value. There's value to our sanctification as we are forced to learn how to trust the Lord and how to lean in closer to him and how to cling to him and grow in that relationship of trust. There's value in other people seeing true faith in action. Jesus said that being thrown into prison would be a testing of their faith. You know, the Lord is truthful with us. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't make them different than they really are. He told them, you know, I have no criticism for you, but there's more trouble coming. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what the devil will attempt to do to you. As we think about that, I wonder about you what adversity have you faced in your life um, that you have endured what testing of your faith have you seen come about where you had to see your faith be proved Jesus goes on to say for 10 days you will have tribulation did you wonder about what he meant by that for 10 days you will have tribulation. Perhaps he was being literal. Perhaps he was telling them, don't be afraid because you've only got 10 days that you're going to have to hold tight. Maybe he meant that. Maybe he meant that the 10 days represented 10 periods of persecution that would come. As I studied this statement out, um, I discovered that many Bible scholars believe that that's the case. In fact, they have charted a period of time in the times of the early church, about 250 years, where you can actually chart about 10 different persecutions that the church began to face. Maybe that's what he means. 
Others say that when Jesus said that, what he was really doing, he was just using a simple euphemism that means for a short time. And then they offer various scriptures to try to back that up. Truth is, I don't know. I don't know what he meant exactly by 10 days. I tend to lean toward the idea that the 10 days was nothing more than a euphemism for meaning a short time, but I wouldn't swear to that, just what I tend to believe. But that notwithstanding, that notwithstanding, the message that Jesus is giving them is clear, and that is tribulation is coming. And as it comes, you are not to shrink back. You are not to live in fear, but you are to prepare yourselves to stand firm in your faith. And speaking of standing firm in their faith, he tells them, be faithful. Be faithful even to death. You know, that's a a very real prospect, was a very real prospect for the Christians of that day. It was even more a real prospect for the Christians there in Smyrna. Church history tells us that there were more martyrs in the early days of the church coming out of Smyrna than any other community. And so Smyrna saw her fair share of people giving their lives for their faith. One one of the most notable was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was known as the Bishop of Smyrna. We're told that Polycarp knew John. He had been a disciple of John. And now 60 years from the time that John recorded Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna, we find Polycarp modeled what faithfulness to Christ looked like even in the face of death. I'm going to share a few points from his story. Um, I've really narrowed it down and weeded it out because it's quite long. And there's a lot of fascinating points that are made in his story. You might want to Google his name and you'll find plenty of places to read the story. But here it is in brief. After years of successfully pastoring the Christian church in Smyrna, the civil government agitated by Jews, the likes of which are referenced there in verse 9, They came demanding that Polycarp be arrested, that he be charged with being an atheist. The charge coming because he would not recognize the gods of Rome, nor would he recognize the supposed deity of the emperor. And so orders were given for his arrest. And the orders said to bring him to the stadium, the city stadium. It is said that as he was being escorted into the city stadium that he heard a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself to be a man, O Polycarp. He was 86 years old when this happened to him. Out of respect for his age, the proconsul sought to reason with him to save his life by denying Christ and by swearing publicly by Caesar's name that the atheists being defined as fellow Christians should be done away with. This was Polycarp's response. He said, 80 and six years I have served him, meaning Christ, and he has never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? 
The proconsul pressed him even harder, argued with him, tried to get him to recant. But Polycarp there in public declared, I am a Christian. I will not recant. The proconsul then said, well, I've got wild beasts at my disposal and I'm going to release them on you and let them attack you and rip you apart if you don't repent. To which Polycarp said, call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. The proconsul then threatened to burn him alive if he did not repent. And Polycarp said, bring forward what you will. The story tells us that Polycarp then was taken to a stake that was surrounded by a pile of wood. And as they prepared to nail him to that stake, he asked them not to do that. He said, just, just let me stand here. I guarantee you I will not try to escape from the flames. And so they just simply tied his hands behind his back and let him stand there. His testimony was, God will give me the strength to remain in the fire. As he stood there before they lit the fire, he offered a public prayer of worship to God, giving Christ the glory. And when he said his amen, they lit the fire. The story is that as the flames grew, witnesses began to notice that the fire was forming an arch around him, much like the sails of a ship when they're filled with, with, with the wind. And thus, the flames were not burning him, but encircling his body rather than burning it. Ultimately, it is said that when it became evident that his body was not going to burn, the executioner stepped up with a sword or a dagger and drove it through his body, and then he died. Now, the account as I said a moment ago, is much larger. And there are many, many details that I left out that you would find very fascinating. But the point is this, truth point number three. Not every Christian will face persecution unto death. But Jesus' admonition to his disciples is that we be faithful unto death. Why? Because the testimony of our faith in Christ is worth more than life in our fleshly bodies. you believe that do you do you believe that your testimony of faith in Jesus is worth more than your body than your physical comfort I don't know I heard the yeses I want to say yes but I dare not say yes without saying yes by the grace of God. I think there are people among us, I'm not saying you particularly, but among us in the body of Christ who very well might think that their retirement is, is worth more or their job or their reputation, their ease and comfort. I think it's something we all need to really look at because I think that whether we want to admit it or not in each of us including your pastor <laughs> there is this love of life there is this love of freedom 
this love of comfort. We have it. Let's not deny it. And so I think that when we say, yes, my testimony of faith in Christ is more important than even my body, praise God. But perhaps we should all say, by the grace of God. Because it would only be by the grace of God that any of us would be able to stand up against such as that. The warning, there is none because there was no criticism. And as I think about that, I do ask myself the question, what would need to take place in my life for there to be no criticism from the Lord and no warning about what to deal with as it relates to the criticism? That's another thing to give our thoughts to. Well, we come down to verse 10, the last part of verse 10, verse 11, and the reward. To those who remain faithful to Christ, meaning their faith in him as their Savior and Lord, remains to the end of their physical life. Jesus announces two rewards. The first one is the crown of life. The crown of life. There are at least six crowns mentioned in Scripture that may be awarded to believers at the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll talk about the judgment seat of Christ down the road. Let's just identify those quickly. There's the crown of righteousness found in 2 Timothy 4.8, which is a crown for living a godly life. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, there is the crown of glory for faithful shepherds and teachers. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, there's the crown of gold, which is said to be the evidence of our redemption. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, there is the crown of rejoicing for disciples made. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, there is the incorruptible crown, a crown given for those who live a life of self-control in the face of life's temptations. In James chapter 1, verse 12, the crown of life, which Jesus talks about here, which is the crown of eternal life. Those who remain faithful, those who persevere, those whose faith is strong and does not dissipate, I will give the crown of life. And then, secondly, he says to those, they will receive victory over the second death. Victory over the second death. Apart from experiencing the rapture, church, every one of us in this room will face the first death. Every one of us. First death is when our body ceases to function. And our soul and spirit then is released into eternity. But the second death is a unique death in that it is an eternal state of death. And whenever you hear me talk about death, I want you to always think of the word, right after you hear me say death, I want you to think the word separation. Because that's what death is. As I got all worked up a week or two ago and told you that it's not annihilation. I repeat that, it's not. It's not ceasing to exist. Death is simply to be separated. Because once you are conceived, you are an eternal being. You will never stop living. So when I die the first death, my soul and spirit 
are separated from my body. That's normal death, something we will all face unless the rapture happens beforehand. But the second death takes place when those who were separated from their body and separated from God initially are resurrected to face him at the great white throne judgment and they are forever separated from him in hell. Truth point number four. Let's kind of summarize this. Physical death is the only death that can touch the life of a Christian. And the good news is it is temporary as all who belong to Christ will be raised to new life, to new eternal life. Uh, Dave Sr. and Dave Jr., uh, your wife and your mother has faced the first death, but she will be raised. And she'll never face another death after that. That's something to hold on to and something to encourage you. But those rejecting the love of God through Jesus Christ will experience physical death also. But as I said, will be raised to life to experience the second death, which is eternal separation from God's love in hell. That said, then, I have to ask, where, if you were to die today, where do you stand with the Lord? What death would you experience? If you were to die today, would the only death you experience be physical death? Or would you experience the second death also in hell? The determining factor in that question is where you stand with Jesus. And there's only two places we can stand with him. We either stand with him in faith, trusting his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead as our deliverance from the curse and condemnation and punishment of sin, or we stand in rejection of him, condemned already because we have not believed in Jesus, the only one who can forgive our sin and give us eternal life. Christian, we need to thank God for his gift of Jesus. We need to thank him for that every day. We need to thank him for the saving work that Christ has brought to bear and the right standing that can be had with God the Father and eternal life in his presence because of what Christ has done for us. And I want to say this to you, that you should be encouraged that no amount of persecution, even that unto death, can take away what God has given you. The thing I want you to walk away with, Christian, here this morning is this, is that God holds you in his hand and you are his forever. That is something to praise and worship him for. But to my non-believing friends, I say that apart from Christ, you have no hope. There is no hope apart from Christ. But the good news is there is hope because Jesus today invites you to repent. He invites you to embrace him as his Savior and Lord and thus be saved, thus becoming his son or his daughter, thus only ever facing the first death. If you have questions about the gospel, I would love to talk with you. My contact information is there on the screen. If you reach out, I'll reach back, and the Lord will meet you where you are. Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to share these things. And I pray that your spirit will do what I cannot do. All I can do is attempt to share in a compelling way but your spirit can reach into the depths of our soul. 
into the very depths of our inner person. There, he can open up our eyes. He can help us to see our condition before you. He can help us to find the faith that is necessary to embrace Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Father, I pray that you would work in those hearts that have yet to come to that place of faith and repentance, and that today you would save men, women, boys, and girls and bring them into your family, into your kingdom. For those of us who are believers, may you continue to encourage us and remind us that we are yours and that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can take us out of your family. Nothing can remove us from your kingdom. When you bring us into that reality, we are there and we are yours forever. And may we rejoice in that. But beyond rejoicing, may we also be faithful to share that good news with others that they also may hear it and believe. Lord, wherever we're at in our life today, whatever you may have spoken to someone's life about today, Lord, help them to be willing to take that next step, to come and receive prayer, to come and share their story, to go to the next step table and ask for a resource or a help to make that move that you've been leading them to do. Help them to know that you love them and that we're here to minister to them for your glory. I lift this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.